Hello and welcome to the Faculty Podcast, covering the latest breakthroughs, research, news and insight delivered by the world's leading academic and industry figures. About 30 million or so years ago, the Great African Rift Valley started forming, and it's a function of the tectonic plates that make up Africa tearing apart. And so sometimes plates crash together, and sometimes they tear apart. It's all driven by the underlying currents in the mantle. Well, in the case of Africa, it's tearing apart. And for reasons that are sufficiently complex that even after reading the papers, I don't quite follow, what's also happening is that the east side of the Rift Valley is upwelling, often to an altitude of about a mile in the air. The consequence of this process is for the last 30 million years, the rainforest that was in East Africa prior to this event has slowly been receding. And by about 6 million years ago, there was virtually none of that rainforest left. And what you had is isolated stands of trees and lots of savanna as the increased elevation and dryness on the east side of the Rift Valley caused the rainforest to disappear. The end result of that process was that our chimp-like ancestors, we don't know exactly what they look like, but to the best of our evidence, they probably looked a lot like modern chimps today. These chimp-like ancestors of ours were now separated from the trees in which they'd made such a good living, and they had to find a new a way to make a new living out on the savanna. Now, for chimps, this is an enormous problem because they're not very fast, and um, the kind of foods they ate have disappeared with the trees, and all sorts of new predators emerged. So, from what we can tell, they really spent a few million years kind of skulking around the edges of the savanna, probably keeping an eye out for predators and, and just being very low in the food chain rather than the kind of position we occupy today, or even the position that chimps still occupy in the rainforest, where they're really kings of the canopy. But by about three and a half million years ago, we had evolved bipedalism. And so this is now Australopithecines, and they could, they could walk upright just as we do with a locked knee and a locked hip. And that walking upright on two legs changed the shape of their body in an interesting way that allowed them to rotate more laterally than a chimpanzee can do with its tighter muscles that are designed more vertically. The end result of that process is that as a byproduct of bipedalism, chimpanzees are our chimp-like ancestors, these are now Australopithecines, gained a capacity that no other animal on this planet had until then which is the capacity to kill at a distance. It's the single most important invention in all of military history. And the reason it's so important is now a larger force of weaker individuals can attack and subdue a smaller force of stronger individuals, which they never could have done before. I mean, if there were a lion on the savanna, 50 Australopithecines could probably beat it to death with, a, with clubs and rocks, but many would die in the process as it would bite so many of them. Whereas if you could throw stones at it, um, because they've gained this ability to throw much more effectively, now they can kill it from a position of relative safety. But the key there was this capacity to throw demanded collective action, it demanded cooperation. And that was really the big change because prior to then, chimpanzees are really more competitive with each other than they are cooperative. And so once our Australopithecine ancestors learned to be more cooperative, now they were in a position to defend themselves effectively and use their numbers in order to create a really effective force. And that really changed everything because going forward, now the group goals and the individual goals align and the smarter the individuals are, the more that they could become effective as a group by developing things like division of labor, planning for the future. And so for the first time in our history, there was enormous pressure for us to get smarter in a way that would actually also provide us benefits by getting smarter. You know, a really smart zebra still has hooves and and is still eating grass, and so it can't pay the rent on such a big brain. But a really smart social creature that works together and that can cooperate in their own defense and then learn to cooperate to hunt and all that as well is a creature that could benefit from a big brain in an enormous way and 
pay the price of the rent by bringing in more and higher quality calories. Now, ostracizing is a funny thing because it hurts our feelings, even when people we don't like ostracize us. And, and what the data suggests is that the reason that ostracizing is such a painful thing, the reason being rejected is so painful is because for our ancestors, it was literally a death sentence. Once they moved off out of the forest and onto the savanna, the um, alone australopithecine was a meal for anyone who came along because even if they're effective throwers, they simply can't stop large predators like leopards, hyenas, and lions. So by yourself, you're anybody's dinner, but in your group, you could effectively defend yourself. And so what we really need is for our group to like us and our group to want us to be around. And our ancestors didn't care if they're ostracized. We didn't care if the group liked them. Well, they weren't our ancestors after all, because they ended up getting tossed out of the group and eaten rather than having the opportunity to reproduce. So we evolved a strong distaste for rejection and we evolved to do anything in our power to prevent our group from throwing us out because it was so important that not only we retain the protection of our group, but that we retain the effectiveness of our group in hunting and all the other activities that we would have been engaged in. And that's carried through to Homo sapiens. A lone individual in the forest is anyone's meal, whereas a group of humans in the forest, really, they're the top predator, even if they're relatively inept. And so comparison is a funny business because on the one hand, it doesn't really matter to me what you have. If I have a nice car and a comfortable home so I can get around and I have plenty to eat, what do I care that you have a nicer car, a fancier home, and you eat better food? What difference does it make to me? Well, it turns out it actually makes an important difference. And the reason for that is it doesn't really matter what my absolute level of traits are. What really matters is how I compare up to the rest of the people in my group. Because if, if a female in my group is trying to choose whether she wants to partner up with me, she's going to compare my qualities to the qualities of everybody else who's around me. And if I stack up well, even if I'm a complete schmuck, if I'm the least bad of her options, she'll choose me. Whereas if I don't stack up well, even if I'm a lovely guy, if everybody else is lovelier and has more stuff and they're stronger and smarter, et cetera, she won't choose me. And so it makes us perpetually nosy as we always want to know, how are we stacking up to others? We compare ourselves to them and it upsets us when that comparison comes out negatively. So if my boss came into my office and said, Bill, you've been doing a great job. I'm going to give you a thousand dollar raise. I'd be super happy. And then I'm at the water cooler and I chat to the guy in the office next. He goes, oh yeah, me too. I got a $10,000 raise. Well, immediately I'm upset because suddenly it feels like this thing that was great that set me above other people isn't great enough and I'm actually falling behind. So self-control is a really interesting problem. We, for the longest time in psychology, we just assumed that we evolved the capacity for self-control in order to effectively plan for the future. So for example, if you wanna be a farmer, you have to plant the seed and not eat it. If, and then you have to work hard to let it grow before it's finally ready. If you wanna have a happy retirement, you have to save your money and not spend it. If you wanna stay healthy, you have to stop yourself from eating the delicious cake that somebody just made for a birthday or whatever the case might be. And so we thought of self-control as this capacity we evolved to plan and prepare for the future and make the future better for us. But in actual fact, if we look at hunter-gatherers and the way they live, they don't give much thought to tomorrow because they don't own refrigerators. They, whatever they kill today, they eat today. And so planning for tomorrow doesn't do them much good. They didn't have retirement savings they, until only 10,000 years ago. They weren't planting anything. So there was no need to be thinking about um, the harvest. And certainly they never stopped themselves from eating any fat, salt or sugar that they came upon because they were in perpetually short supply. And so it's actually, despite the fact that we use our self-control right now in order to plan for the future, it's actually the case that that's not why we evolved it. Rather, what the data suggests is that we evolved the capacity for self-control in order to more effectively manage our social circumstances. 
So social interactions are immensely complicated. I have to, when I'm with this very attractive person, I have to remember that she's actually partnered up with a big guy in my group. And if I flirt with her, I might get my face punched in. When I, um, when my boss frustrates me, I have to remember, well, he's going to be my boss tomorrow. I can't tell him to get stuff and not do what he's asking me to do. And so it takes a lot of self-control to navigate the complex social world that we live in. And that seems far more likely to be the origins, the evolutionary origins of why we have this capacity for self-control, which compared to the other animals in the planet is really quite impressive. Happiness is a really interesting evolutionary problem. On the one hand, it's easy to see why evolution gave us this trait because it motivates us to do what's in our genes best interests. Uh, our potential ancestors who were motivated to do things that weren't in their genetic interest, well, they don't end up being our ancestors. So if they really love the taste of dog manure, um, that, that's they're ingesting parasites and pathogens and they're not gonna live long and they're not gonna pass on that proclivity. But if they enjoy the taste of fat, salt, and sugar, well, that's something that's in rare supply. And so evolution makes you happy when you pursue those things that actually make you stronger and, and make you healthy and make you more reproductively successful. Now, the key thing there though, is that that means that it also has to motivate us to do things that are in our, our group's interest and our interest, but it has to be able to continually be able to motivate us. So we think about the goals that we have today. If I could just get promoted, if I could just get that person to go out with me, if I could just buy this fancy automobile, whatever the case might be, we think, boy, that'll make me permanently happy. I'll just be happier forever. But evolution can't allow us to be happier forever because then it would lose one of its most important motivational tools. So think about our ancestors out there on the ice. There, two of them are going off to hunt a mastodon and they both lead the hunt successfully and they both bring back the kill and they're the toast of the clan. Well, if one of them was happy forever after, he'd never be motivated to lead another hunt. And pretty soon he's gonna be forgotten and left behind. Whereas if one, the other one was momentarily happy, got a great benefit, in, in the interpersonal feelings about the success and everybody being proud of them, but then that feeling faded, that person will be re-motivated to achieve and won't be left behind. So there's lots of great data. My favorite study is probably one by uh, Shige Oishi, who shows that the happier you are um, in, in the uh, late 80s in this particular case, the more money you earned in the early 2000s up to a point. And once you get too happy, you start earning less and less money 20 years later. So the problem is that if you're super happy, you're just not motivated to achieve. And as a consequence, you get left behind.